to really appreciate everything that happens to Robert Smith and the cure as a concept between fall 1982 and fall 1984, you have to understand somewhat the history of Susie and the Banshees. Susie and the Banshees start like any punk band. They have no idea how to play instruments. They're capitalizing on Susie's fame as an outsized celebrity coming out of punk rock. Susie is the standout cabaret caricature with the topless leather straps and swastika. And Severin's there too. They are key figures in the punk explosion. It can be argued that Susie causes the filth and the fury because she's egging on Bill Grundy, saying she always wanted to meet him. And he actually comes back with like this pathetic attempt at a chat-up line, which is what sets off Steve Jones. What about you guys? Behind. Right, like your dad, right. isn't he, are you uh <laughs> your granddad? Are you worried or are you just enjoying yourself? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought you were doing. I always wanted to meet you. Did you really? Yeah. We'll meet afterwards, shall we? <laughs> you yeah. dirty yeah. son. Yeah. You dirty old man. <laughs> well keep going, Chief. Keep going. <laughs> Go on, you've got another five you seconds. Say something outrageous. You dirty bastard. Go on, again. <laughs> you dirty fucker. What a clever boy. What a fucking rotter. Well, that's it for tonight. This ignites the filth and the fury, the, the explosion of punk in the public consciousness. Susie's picture is on the cover of the fucking Daily Mail. But the first two Susie and the Banshees records with John McKay and Kenny Morris, this is just learning how to bash on things and make a noise. And while songs like Mitigazin, Metal Postcard, and Hong Kong Garden are enduring slabs of punk, the Susie and the Banshees that's endured throughout the 80s and really the history of pop now doesn't start to take shape until McKay and Morris quit the band. After this happens, the person they reach out to is a guy called John McGeek, basically the Kevin Shields of the 1980s. is the most influential guitarist on the whole history of alternative and original guitar sounds dating from essentially Kaleidoscope, the first Susie and the Banshees album he appears on. My general impression is a lot of Susie fans haven't necessarily explored the deeper album cuts on the John McGeeck triptych, which is Kaleidoscope, Juju, and A Kiss in the Dreamhouse. John McGeeck comes in at the same time as Budgie, who's been playing with the slits. So in 1980, as the Cure are polishing up 17 seconds, Susie and the Banshees start to learn how to write real songs. And they have a small hit in Christine. Christine, the strawberry girl, Christine, Kaleidoscope actually remains Robert Smith's favorite album in the Banshees catalog, but Kaleidoscope is still sort of patchy. It's not a knockout heavyweight album of, you know, contiguous quality. Juju gets a lot closer to that, and this is really one of the signature records of the whole 80s in as much as anything by The Cure is. You can't count the number of guitarists that have ripped off Monitor.
and so much of what McGee does with his guitar is replicated or filters through to other bands. But he's in a different position to the Banshees, because he's already been in a successful band. He was in Magazine with Howard DeVoto coming out of the breakup of the Buzzcocks. He did three albums with him. He ends up backing Steve Strange, the outsized personality who spawned the Blitz Kids scene, and they have a massive hit in Europe with Fade to Grey. already kind of got money. He's already set up. He sees the Banshees as a legitimate, you know, next step into a higher tier of, you know, celebrity label support and, and really just a fan base, a chance to play bigger shows and thrive behind the catching, growing celebrity of Sue. Sue and Severin both share a conviction in developing this arch posture, this very regal, detached persona for Sue. And over the three albums of John McGeek, they're getting there. Sue and Severin's single-mindedness is why they aren't consumed by the Blitz Kids fad, by the New Romantics movement. You know, in 1980, one of the reasons McGeek joins the Banshees is that David Bowie comes in like a giant baby Huey and destroys the entire Blitz Kids scene by stealing all their fashions for the Ashes to Ashes video. His courtesy there is he puts Steve Strange in the video. Thanks. I mean, after that, the entire decadence of the Blitz Kids scene is sort of destroyed. And then you have the ascendance of Boy George. Everything just goes into a completely surface, commercial, fashion place. And Susie and the Banshees never made that move. Israel sort of marks the point where goth starts to become this Judaic psychedelia thing. It's like an apologia for having used the swastika during punk as a piece of fuck-off equipment to upset people on television or on the tube. As things start to solidify after Israel and they start working on Juju, Susie Sue falls in love with Budgie and vice versa. And they're like keeping it a secret because at some point in the past, Severin and Sue had been some sort of article who platonically decoupled. And not only do they hit it off romantically, they form a side project called The Creatures and do an EP called Wild Things. On the cover of this EP, Susie's half naked, which goes some way to explaining why it sells so well. So while The Cure are breaking up in June of 1982, the Banshees are recording their first single with Mike Hedges. After recording Fireworks with Mike Hedges, the Banshees go out to Europe to tour. And this is where John McGeeck really starts to struggle with alcohol. There's an anecdote from Severin that he went to get him up one morning out of the hotel and there's a box of wine next to the bed. Now he's literally just sipping out of a box of wine all night to stay asleep. And Sue says they were in a cab going somewhere at 10 in the morning and just his teeth were black. And the Banshees are prepping another tour and another single in Slow Dive. They're playing in Madrid in October and John McGeek just passes out on stage. Alcohol, drugs, mental exhaustion, whatever. The Banshees send McGeek home, Severin goes to see him and he's like, yeah, we're, we're done here. We have no options. Call Robert. Just like John McCann and Kenny Morris bailed on him in 79, now they're out their main songwriter and guitarist. And Sue is just like, this is fucking bullshit. We've made so much progress and yet again, it's all falling apart. So she's hysterical. Severin gets his way and is like, well, Robert can come in. You know, they already know him. He's a familiar face. 
This makes it easy to keep things going. They can ignore what's just happened, this traumatic scenario with McGee. And Sue further retreats into the relationship with Budgie for some emotional stability. With Robert, they get the tour done in November. In December, Sue wants to record a rendition of Ilene, Le Divin Enfant for a Christmas single as the B-side to Melt. The video for Ilene, Le Divin Enfant, which has rarely been seen until the YouTube era, features Robert in his signature look in this eight-month window when he returns to pop music. He's in all black with tons of bandanas around his boots and these giant black shit kickers. You know, he looks like he's about to fall over or he's tripping out of his mind. It's a bit of it is a cartoonish act. She often thought Smith was full of shit and putting on an act and playing this flaky, airheaded clown figure. With the tour commitments behind them, Budgie and Sue decide to fly to Hawaii to record a full-length album, Feast, as the Creatures. With them distracted by all this and their relationship, Severn and Smith sort of huddle together and they write a song that finally starts to pay tribute to Smith's love of doo-wop and girl groups, Punish Me With Kisses. book studio time at Britannia Row with an eye to seeing if they could do a whole album together. This becomes the Gloves Blue Sunshine. Sunshine is the only psychedelic synth record there is. I talked in the pornography podcast about how goth in the background was totally driven by psychedelic drugs. That all comes to the forefront, starting sort of with Israel, but it peaks hugely with A Kiss in the Dream House. The Gustav Klimt cover, you know, all the influences, the imagery, the black and gold, chains, prayer beads, stars of David hanging all over the place. Susie looks like a goddamn witch from a Hammer horror film and the Dear Prudence performance on Top of the Pops. While the Glove Project is Severin and Smith, it's also part of this huge chaos that's going on with a bunch of other musicians, principally Mark Almond. Mark has formed another band coming out of Soft Cell, and he's taking the money he's made as Soft Cell to try and make this collective. It's going to be called Mark and the Mambas. And Smith and Severin write a song for him, Torment. Other people in this orbit include future Banshees keyboardist Martin McCarrick, Ann Stevenson coming out of working with Virginia Astley, Ginny Hughes, and Jim Thrillwell, Fetus, as well as Matt Johnson from The The was initially involved in this whole Mark Allman party all the time, make a record with a bunch of people jam session. It's not a success, and in fact, Severin is a bit of an asshole about it and tells Mark Allman that he thinks he fucked the song up, and it screws their whole relationship up for years. 
Smith is bringing a, a handful of psychedelic acid songs to the Glove Project. Like an Animal, which is essentially the initial demo of In Between Days, Sex Eye Makeup, A Perfect Murder, which is kind of a ripoff of the Talking Heads Once in a Lifetime. Mouth to Mouth, which doesn't make the record, but is included on reissues later from 1990 on. Mouth to Mouth is a fantastic cut. It's obviously coming from that whole aerial lament demo period. Smith should have held on to that. He really should have worked it up for the top. The only song that he has that he doesn't give to the glove is dressing up and dressing up ends up on the top. The glove is very much a concept. It's this idea. And this is the problem for both Susie and the Banshees and the Cure between 1982 and 1984. They think they can do it all. They think they can turn every idea they have into a fully fledged, independently marketed band with its own album, discography, image, lexicon influences. They've really kind of gotten too big for their britches in some respects, but in other respects, this is running away from emotional problems. Smith running to Severin, Sue and Budgie running away together. Those dynamics are not inconsiderable. The Glove is 100% about 60s pastiche, the Yellow Submarine film, you know, the Avengers. All the credits are pseudonymous. Merlin Griffiths is the producer. No, it's Mike Hedges. Mixed using the fish panning method developed by Mr. Waverly. Alexander Waverly, the man from UNCLE. One of the reasons they're making these jokes and, and using fake names is Chris Perry refuses to let Robert Smith sing in this band because it's going to dilute the Cure's market and people are going to think the Cure's over and now there's this new band called The Glove. So he legally prevents Smith from singing on this. In fact, he threatens him that if he even records any demo tracks in excess of the two songs that he's allowed to sing, he's going to sue him. And it creates a really unfortunate situation that Robert Smith has perpetuated over the reissue campaigns of The Cure's albums and The Glove's Blue Sunshine, which is that he re-records vocals for these songs and he's singing in his completely over-theatric modern voice, the voice you hear on the self-titled album from 2004 that has none of the qualities of what he sounded like in 1983 that made these records so compelling back then. It sounds totally out of place and horrible, and they lied about it. Severin was totally playing games when fans would ask him, are these Robert's vocals from 1983? He'd be like, well, it's he's singing over the original tracks or whatever. I mean, it, it was totally indefensible. And to be frank, the Cure's whole marketing and everything to do with them for the last like 10 years has been indefensible. They just put out a fucking calendar for the anniversary of faith and they printed it wrong. <laughs> After these initial sessions, Perry says, okay, you've done that. Now get the fuck back in the studio as the cure and do a proper record. So they go back in the studio and Robert musters an EP to support the new single, The Walk. Apart from The Walk itself, Smith basically has what would have been another single, but the songs really weren't strong enough. The Upstairs Room and The Dream. These are basically mirror images of each other. There's a great guitar tone in The Upstairs Room. I don't
the dream is fun and irreverent, and then they re-record Lament properly. And Lament and Just One Kiss are the two classically cure songs to come out of all this dream single hyperactivity. Like everyone else in the early 80s, Smith is trying to figure out how he's going to apply synthesizers and sequencers to his musical ideas. It starts out really with 100 years, but to that point, syndromes and, and you know, rototoms and all these other little things are just accents giving those records a crisp modern sheen. But when you get to the walk, he really wants to learn how to use them. This is something that's fascinated Smith for years to this point, because one of his favorite albums of all time is The Human League's Dare. And many fantasies were One of the most irritating, persistent issues with The Cure is that The Walk is supposedly a ripoff of New Order's Blue Monday. Blue Monday comes out the first week of March, 1983. The Cure's already recorded all the backing tracks and everything for The Walk in February with no idea what the hell New Order are up to. Back then, this technology is so limited. You have to have a huge budget and a lot of time to really mess around and get anything out of these units that doesn't sound like everyone else who uses them. This is the heyday of the synthesizer arms race when everyone's trying to get new equipment because it sounds different than last year's unit that New Order made a hit with Blue Monday out of. They premiere The Walk in a radio session in May and then it's released in July and it always kind of follows them around. want to have the conversation about Robert Smith pulling from people and starting to form an identity, which is what he's doing during the 82-84 period. There's other places you can look. Susie Sue is one of the biggest celebrities in the world, you know? And Smith says, his quote is always, when you're standing behind Sue, you are standing behind Sue. And that's what he wanted to do. He didn't feel comfortable with his persona. He, he went down this freight train into madness with the trilogy that ends in pornography. And then he's just like, you know what? I don't want to kill myself. I want to have fun. I want to do shit. I want to be creative. That comes before any search for identity, certainly any search for a performative persona, which is what he perfects coming out of this period. So look, in some ways, if you're a Susie apologist, the 82 to 84 period, Smith is learning a lot. He's sort of in school and there is some cribbing and it really, to me, is nothing to do with New Order or even Mark Almond. The most egregious thing that happens in this entire period is Robert rushing into the studio in the summer to do his version of the completely unexpected Creatures Smash, their incomparably perfect version of Mel Torme's Right Now. Baby, baby, don't leave me at the post. Kiss me, kiss me, coast to coast. 
This is exactly what Susan Ballion should have been. She's trapped in the goth punk Susie character, right? She's really an elegant woman, and she doesn't get to play that in the Banshees. Her band's breaking up every two years. She breaks her fucking leg on tour. Everyone's doing drugs. It's too chaotic. She wants to be a proper pop star. She wants doors open for her, red fucking carpet. With the Love Cats, all the shit Susie's given Robert over the years, calling him Fat Boy Smith, and, you know, just taking the piss out of him whenever possible. You know, and I think in a loving, again, typically British way, but still, you know, they said he was making a big space opera when he when he quit during hyena and he was they were bullshit because yet again here we are all over again right morrison mckay bail on us john mcgeek bails on us we spend a year and a half robert smith is telling us he wants to document his time in the banshees and make a proper record with us but what ends up happening he starts having his biggest fucking hits as the cure he keeps getting pulled away by his manager his manager won't let him sing on his side project with steve severin they cracked the top 10 for the first time with the Love Cats, and it does better than right now. there's a lasting history to this period and it's not any of these side projects and it's not even the proper albums released under the banshees and cure names it's the band's cover of the beatles dear prudence Dear Prudence is without question the absolute pinnacle of everything that had been building. Forget Culture Club, Susie stayed defiantly her own artist and Severin his own artist. They were not commercial at fucking all. And that is a really important thing to stress, more so than The Cure, because Robert made being commercial a joke. He did Why Can't I Be You and Hot Hot Hot. He's always screwing around and making himself a clown because if he's a character, he can be serious one minute and unserious the next. Sue doesn't want anything to do with that. Their appeal is limited by that. And then funnily, what about eight years after this, Robert takes a huge shot at Susie and says that the Banshees have compromised everything they ever accomplished by trying to sell records in America when they release Kiss Them For Me. And I mean, I can't say he's wrong in that assessment insofar as the B-side of Kiss Them For Me return is one of Susie's best songs full stop. Compositionally, the performance, the emotional intensity. Return is right up there with Until the Last Beat of My Heart from Peep Show. 
It's one of Sue's strongest songs and performances. And yet it's just fucking B-side that gets lost for like over a decade and ends up on a box set that's now like 250 bucks if you can fucking find it. I give the Banshees a lot of credit. Talking about them in the context of The Cure and Robert Smith screwing around for two years and playing dress up, being in this band and out of this band and doing Cure dance singles, it's unfair. He did hijack the Banshees ultimately, and The Cure benefited from it hugely. I can't recall an interview where anyone held Smith's feet to the fire over Love Cats and Right Now. June and July 1983, they're in Angel Studios. They get the bulk of the record done here. Sue has a fixation on this little piano line she's written. You know, of everything to come out of this period, Susie and the Banshees' Dazzle, which is a Sue song. Dear Prudence is the commercial referendum on the potential of all these people working together, what they could do. But Dazzle is a definitive Susie Sue song. It is a Susie and the Banshees song of the first order. It's one of the best things they ever recorded. It's so much better than the rest of the album, it's almost embarrassing. And it's so much more Susie and the Banshees than the rest of the album. Robert's songs are extremely obvious. One of my favorites, a really overlooked song on this record is Belladonna. Belladonna to me is, is the most straightforward and best mixture of what Robert Smith can bring melodically and what Severin can bring as a bassist and, and composer. You know, I'm biased heavily toward Blue Sunshine. I think it's a far better record than Hyena or The Top. The only problem, again, is that Perry prevented Robert from singing on all but two songs. So the rest of the record is sung by a woman who's not really a trained singer, Jeanette Landre. There's no two ways about it. She's just doing a fucking impression of Susie Sue. I honestly think if, if Smith and Severin in secret had like made a pact and not told Chris Perry and recorded and saved Robert's vocals, and, and we could listen to that today, I, I just think the critical praise, the adoration, the, oh my God, how did we miss this, would be really palpable. There's so much to recommend on this album, and I think, you know, a lot of Cure fans go to a blues and drag, a, a very sullen, very Pink Floyd phased kind of uh, keyboard song, an interlude, but it's very predictable that that would be an enduring cut from this because it's more conforming to the history of the Cure sound, right? To me, my favorite cut on the record is easily one of Severin's, This Green City.
The flute on this Green City, there's, I mentioned it before about the flexi-pop version of Lament. There's something about the strength of the waveform of wind instruments and reeds and flutes. It just, it's so transportive emotionally. I mean, it was transportive emotionally when I was 14 years old and I first heard it. And it's as transportive today. The most obvious Robert Smith contribution on Hyena is Swimming Horses, which is just a demo for six different ways from Head on the Door. It works beautifully. The guitar work coming out of the chorus is really remarkable. I mean, if you want to learn about how beautifully you can incorporate room reflections, a little bit of reverb, a little bit of chorus, and just have it elevate the song right out of the mix. The main line in Swimming Horses is a definitive example of that. Once things start to go really crazy in the fall of 83, Smith's right back where he was when he was recording pornography in terms of substance abuse, drinking. He's a fucking mess. There's footage of a show in 1984, I think it's in Holland, where, I mean, he can barely walk. The Cure are blowing up all over in America. The Love Cats is going to come out in October. It's just impossible for him to continue pretending he's not the front man in The Cure. There is an infamous Top of the Pops in Christmas of 1983 that really announces the arrival of Robert Smith as a persona, the way he's tried to arrive at his whole career. The Banshees do Dear Prudence. He does The Love Cats. Japanese Whispers comes out, and Japanese Whispers becomes the way almost everyone in America hears these pop singles in this period of The Cure, The Walk, Let's Go to Bed, and Love Cats. But they still haven't finished Hyena. In November, they go to do more actual recording. But then Mike Hedges is like, guys, this still isn't right. So even in January, this is seven months later after their first initial sessions. That's an eternity for an indie band like this. Hedges is calling in studio musicians to come in and polish this thing up. Susie is fucking pissed and doesn't want to even think about this record anymore. It doesn't end well. And the album doesn't even come out until June. Robert releases the top in April before the Banshees even get Hyena out. They spent an entire day in the studio trying to loop a fan screaming for the song Love and Avoid for Nocturne. This incident was so seared in Robert's mind that he immediately set out to record basically a bootleg. He wanted to make a completely no-budget, 100% live album, and this becomes Concert, an outstanding document, despite it not being The Cure's classic imperial lineup with Boris Williams and Simon Gallup. For the material Smith had to this point, the simplicity of the 17 seconds material of Primary, of Charlotte Sometimes, and then the now bird new complexity of having a studio quality drummer for the first time this band's been together and charting for six years and he just now has a real drummer from the very opening of the top shake dog shake there is a herald announcement that this is a fucking rock band <laughs>
and the album cover, you know, Pearl Thompson comes back into the fold, designs that incredibly iconic rainbow melting pseudo Middle Eastern typeface. Oh man, it's such an incredible package. It's a shame that the music in it isn't stronger. In early September of 83, the Banshees had gone to Tel Aviv for two hugely promoted concerts in Israel. Smith wrote a bunch of really tawdry, you know, ethnocentric, shallow bullshit using melodies he heard there. Wailing wall, stiff as toys and tall as men. Even though the material's a mess and Smith's a mess and the singing is even affected by what a fucking mess he is, he meets Dave Allen. He's the guy that makes The Cure's sound. From Head on the Door through Wish, all of those albums are produced by Dave Allen. Allen's presence is immediately felt in the clarity and punishing power of Andy Anderson's drums. Now, there's a big obvious influence at this time, David Bowie's Let's Dance. The drum sounds have radically changed in the early 80s with the introduction of room reflections and reverse reverbs and all these other options and ways people mess with the decaying reflections of snare drums and toms. You know, he sticks with the whole thing of putting the, the title track at the end. I actually like the top as a song. It's a, it's a beautiful hallucinatory meditation. It, it's kind of beautiful and stoned in a way that's not so harrowing or maudlin. I was never a huge fan of Banana Fishbones. That's really going for it in that honky, thin white dude. Bowie sort of way. But Smith is really stubborn about the top, oddly. He knows it's a weak record. It's basically a solo record. He's all over the place. But multiple songs from this record stay in The Cure's repertoire for decades. Shake Dog Shake, Piggy in the Mirror, and Dressing Up. These songs have their fans. I mean, to me, Bird Mad Girl is the sort of secret sweet spot on this album. It's gorgeous. It's simple. It's sonically wonderful. A lot of space, a lot of twinkly little melodies and faraway horns again and winds. I love his little at the end. Like, it's just, it's good stuff. Of course you got Give Me It. He loves that song live. You know, this is what you get when you get a real serious quality drummer. You can do shit like this. <laughs> And the single is The Caterpillar, which follows nicely on the Love Cats in terms of being a floaty, dreamy, funny thing. And again, you want to talk about Smith not taking care of himself. Look at the video for The Caterpillar. Woo! I mean, that's he, there's a full-on beer belly in that one.
As much as Smith is under pressure to pull the top together and get the record out, and he really wants to wipe the slate clean and move on from this entire period, he can he just feels totally ragged and worn the fuck out. Robert doesn't necessarily want to embody one thing. You know, maybe in a sense he wants it all. But it takes all of his experiences in these two years, from the fall of 1982 to the fall of 1984, for him to figure out and seeing how the Banshees run their band, what he does and doesn't like about the way they behave in the studio, their attitude toward their fans, management, etc. From throwing away the reputation he built up as this morose goth figurehead in The Cure and getting away with Let's Go to Bed and trying to take it a little more seriously with The Walk and then with the Love Cats realizing that no matter how far he takes it, how silly, unserious, drunk and stupid he appears, it still resonates. He can finally do anything and now he can do it as the cure. (laughs) 